About 25 miles, 40 kilometers northeast of the hustle and bustle of Mexico City, there stands a vast archaeological site, a city itself at one point, whose scale and grandeur continue to both perplex and fascinate tourists and archaeologists alike. Laid out on a deliberate plan, one of the largest and best of its kind in all of Mesoamerica, it's comprised of three great pyramids and a long avenue that links them together. Even more intriguing is that, based upon extensive research, historians believe that, at its height, it was the sixth largest city in the world at the time. But despite these facts and the impressive structures that have survived up to the present, there's still a great deal we don't know about it. Even its name, Teotihuacan, is an exonym, which was given to it much later by the Aztecs, who happened upon it several centuries after its collapse and abandonment. How did this ancient city rise? What was its significance in the greater world of Mesoamerica? And how exactly did it collapse? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. In the heart of Mexico lies a big valley, much of which was once submerged beneath an ancient lake. Now known as the Valley of Mexico, it served, in its days as a lake, as the cradle for many of the country's pre-Columbian societies and civilizations. With its abundant source of fresh water and rich, fertile soil, it became an ideal location for these early indigenous cultures, who grew crops like beans, squash, and most importantly maize on its shores. As these peoples prospered, their originally semi-nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyles were abandoned in favor of more permanent settlements. It was a collection of such settlements that laid the foundations of Teotihuacan way back in the 7th century BC. The name Teotihuacan comes from the Nahuatl, or Aztec language, and roughly translates to something like birthplace of the gods. It was called such because the site was considered holy and sacred to the Aztecs, who first arrived in the Valley of Mexico from their homeland in northwest Mexico in the 13th century. By then, the city had long been abandoned, but they considered it the place where both their gods and the universe itself had been born and created respectively. What its original inhabitants referred to themselves as, or what name they gave the city, we unfortunately don't know, and likely never will. So it is that the Aztec name has survived down to us, and it's by this name that we refer to it. As previously stated, Teotihuacan's origins can be traced back to around 600 BC. At this time, the area was comprised of several scattered villages and would remain so until roughly 200 BC. During this period, the settlement's total population amounted to about 6,000 inhabitants. But sometime between 100 BC and 1 BC, the length of time now classified as the first period of Teotihuacan's development, local farmers began coalescing around the area's various streams and springs. This significantly changed the settlement's population, and it was then that its origins as an urban and administrative center began. In its second phase of growth, known as Period 2, AD 1 to AD 350, Teotihuacan saw unprecedented development, thanks in large part to its incorporation of smaller neighboring settlements, whose populations had been displaced due to natural disasters, such as earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. It was at this time that people started flocking to the city in droves of their own accord as well, as its rising economy offered artisans and craftspeople the chance to live comfortably in exchange for their valuable skills and services. Such a drastic rise in population meant that its housing situation needed to be completely reorganized. Thus, the first multi-story apartments in the Americas were constructed. These compound complexes came to typify life in Teotihuacan, as no other city in Mesoamerica had such structures. But even these magnificent housing units paled in comparison to the monumental architecture that arose at this time. As the city soon became a center of administrative power, it needed temples and other government edifices from which to assert its authority. The first pyramid at the site, the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, had for years been the primary place of worship, while the place surrounding it had served as a royal residence for the first chiefs and kings of Teotihuacan. These, however, were soon replaced by the even larger and grander Pyramids of the Sun and Moon, as well as the expansive Avenue of the Dead that links them. 
Some historians believe that this change was due to a switch from an absolute monarchy to a bureaucracy. While it's generally accepted that both pyramids were used as temple complexes, it's unclear to which deities they were dedicated, as the monikers of Pyramid of the Sun and Pyramid of the Moon were given much later, long after the temple's original purposes fell into obscurity. This hasn't stopped historians and archaeologists from speculating, however. As farming was vital to the inhabitants of Teotihuacan, it's believed that the smaller of the two pyramids was dedicated to the rain god, Tlaloc, while the larger may have been built to worship a fertility goddess, though it's hard to say for certain. By period 3 of the city's history, AD 350 to AD 650, Teotihuacan had reached its apex. Its population at this time was around 125,000 inhabitants, and archaeological evidence suggests that various neighborhoods housed a diverse mix of peoples, not just from within Mexico, but throughout Mesoamerica. Artifacts unearthed at the site include Mayan pottery, Olmec jade and obsidian carvings, and even Mixtec and Zapotec bas-reliefs. But the Teotihuacanos, as the inhabitants have come to be called, didn't always obtain these new residents peacefully, or through diplomatic measures. Indeed, there's evidence from as far afield as present-day Guatemala that reveals the extent to which Teotihuacan's influence was felt throughout the wider world of the time. In the year 378, a warlord of dubious origin is recorded in the glyphs of the Mayan city-state of Tikal in what's now Guatemala. Known as Siaik literally born of fire in the Mayan language, the imagery with which he's depicted, that of the feathered serpent, revealed that he hailed from Teotihuacan. The inscriptions go on to recount how he and a force of several hundred men staged a coup to oust the king and replace him with a candidate of their choosing. Nearly 50 years later, two more Mayan city-states, Copan and Quirigua, this time an even further afield Honduras, also experienced political intrigue when their kings were deposed and replaced with two new successors. While each of these incidents were ultimately backed by Mayan support from within, as well as neighboring city-states, they reveal the extent to which Teotihuacan exerted its authority and military dominance over the whole of Mesoamerica. Political interference aside, Teotihuacan, regardless, proved highly influential throughout the entire region. Its architecture, characterized by what's known as talud tablero, in which the external slope of a structure, the talud, is reinforced by a rectangular panel, the tablero, can be found as far afield as Mexico's Pacific and Atlantic coasts, all the way down to the jungles of Honduras. It set the standard, in other words, for much of classic Mesoamerican architecture, and shows just how far-reaching Teotihuacan's orbit truly was. But this cultural exchange worked in the opposite direction as well. By allowing these disparate peoples to settle in the city, Teotihuacan's economy boomed, rapidly becoming the center of industry in Mesoamerica, bar none. It was soon home to thousands of craftspeople, potters, architects, and jewelers, whose skill and talents have revealed themselves in successive archaeological digs at the site. Historians have learned, for example, that Teotihuacan was the largest producer of obsidian artifacts in the region. Obsidian, a type of volcanic glass created by the rapid cooling of lava, was plentiful in the area due to high volcanic activity throughout its history. This shiny black substance was molded to perfection by said artisans and craftspeople, who transformed it into decorative and ceremonial masks, jewelry, and even weapons. In addition, hundreds of painted murals have been unearthed. It's believed that several thousand once adorned the walls and buildings of Teotihuacan, the caliber of which have often been compared in quality, technique, and color palette to those of Renaissance Italy. By period 3, AD 350 to AD 650, of Teotihuacan's history, the city was at the pinnacle of its greatness. But then, by the 6th century, the first signs of decline were beginning to reveal themselves. For the longest time, historians believe that outside forces have been instrumental in weakening and ultimately bringing Teotihuacan down. However, as continued study and research has yielded, it's likely that troubles within it helped contribute to its imminent demise. Evidence of the deliberate burning of structures, namely those centered around the ruling class, reveals that political strife among the poorer inhabitants was the culprit. 
In addition, a climate change event in the northern hemisphere that occurred between 535 and 536, caused by the eruption of Mount Ilopango in what's now El Salvador, led to cooler overall temperatures and saw a decrease in the cultivation of crops as a result of prolonged drought. This caused widespread malnutrition, which led to stunted growth in children and saw a sizable chunk of the population being killed off. As the city continued to weaken, it's quite possible that other regional powers rose to fill the proverbial power void, uniting with one another to take advantage of the city's precarious socio-political situation in order to gain control. Between 650 and 750, the fourth and final period of Teotihuacan's history, the city collapsed entirely, and its population abandoned the site, leaving it to be reclaimed by nature. This, you might think, marked the end of Teotihuacan. Indeed, it never again achieved the greatness and strength of the height of its power, but it enjoyed an entirely new life altogether as a sacred site for the Aztecs, who arrived in the Valley of Mexico sometime in the 13th century. By then, the city lay in ruins, virtually covered by dense overgrowth, with the pyramids of the sun, moon, and feathered serpent almost resembling large hills or small mountains, having been buried under silt and dirt that had accumulated over the ensuing five or six centuries. According to their faith, the Aztecs believed that the place was steeped in spiritual energy, and was both the origin of their gods as well as the birthplace of the cosmos. While a good 25 miles, 40 kilometers, northeast of the Aztec capital city of Tenochtitlan, present-day Mexico City, it became a frequent pilgrimage destination for both Aztec emperors as well as the priesthood, who went there to make offerings to the various deities, as well as perform human sacrifices at the summits of the ancient stone pyramids. From the ruins of the current site, it's clear that Teotihuacan was not only the most impressive city in Mesoamerica, but also the most important and strategically located. At its height, it served as a bastion of culture and industry, one whose influence can be found in the cultures and societies of several cities and civilizations. Few places in history have proven to be quite as prominent on so vast a scale. It truly set the standard for all those that followed in Mexico and beyond. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this tour of Teotihuacan, one of the greatest and most impressive cities in Mesoamerica. Today the site remains the most visited place in Mexico, and is just a short bus trip from Mexico City proper. If you've ever been there, let me know about your experience in the comments section of the accompanying post on Instagram. You can find me at History Loves Company. That's history underscore loves underscore company. If you've been catching this and all my previous episodes up to this point and would like to support this podcast, please consider supporting me monthly. Just 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 a month will ensure continued content and allow me to keep posting this podcast. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Tune in again next week for a look at an important but oft-forgotten folklorist in 19th century Germany, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. Thank you.